This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Hello, Pascha. Happy Easter. Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. Alithos Anesti. Indeed, he has risen. And welcome to the Easter edition of the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett, and I want to extend a big welcome as well to our new affiliate, KLFD. AM 1410 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you so much, KLFD, for adding the Conspiracy Show to your schedule. And of course, hello to everyone listening in on one of our affiliate stations across the United States and to everyone listening in on AM 740 Zoomer Radio, our flagship station here in Toronto. Those of you listening online at zoomerradio.ca and of course via the podcast. Wondering how many of you uh, were able to step outside last week and witness the first of four consecutive total lunar eclipses, or blood moons. Of course, last week it also was Passover. And uh, last week on the program, I spoke to pastor and author Mark Blitz about this blood moon tetrad and the fact that these four blood moons, again, all fall on Jewish holy days or feasts of the Lord, and whether or not this phenomenon presages the beginning of the end times. And, you know, I, I look around the world and, and here at home with the, the political subterfuge and the spying and the lying and, and the moral decay and the wars and rumors of wars and the economy cratering and this strange weather we've been having. And I start to worry. Whenever it starts to rain real hard, I think to myself, is this rain ever going to stop? Or is this the beginning of the end? Then, of course, I remember God's promise to Noah that he would never destroy the earth by a flood again. The flood. Most people, when they think of the flood, the ark, Noah, they think of some cute bathtub toy boat with giraffes sticking their necks out the top. Or maybe you think of Russell Crowe watching the coming of the rain in his new movie, Noah. But few stories in the Bible are as filled with as much mystery, intrigue, and controversy as Noah. And that's where we're headed for the next hour. Noah's Ark, the vessel in the Genesis Flood narrative 
by which God saves Noah, his family, and a remnant of all the world's animals from the flood. God gives Noah detailed instructions for building the ark. It's to be made of gopher wood, smeared inside and out with pitch, with three decks and internal compartments, 300 cubits long, 30 cubits high, with a roof, an entrance on the side. The story goes on to describe the ark being afloat throughout the flood and subsequent receding of the waters before it comes to rest on Mount Ararat. Of course, the story is repeated with variations in the Quran, where the ark appears as the Sarfina, Noah's boat. Was it indeed a global flood? Why did God flood the earth? And what other explanations could there be to explain the flood? Was there really an ark? And how did Noah build it? What did it look like? And could it have really housed all of those animals? And finally, if there was an ark, where is it now? Here to explain all is Larry Stone, an author and a publisher, and his latest book is entitled Noah, The Real Story. Previously, he's written The Story of the Bible, which was a finalist for both the ECPA Christian Book Award and Retailer's Choice Award, and named one of the 10 best Christian books of the year by Assist News Service. Hey, Larry, how are you? I'm great, Richard. I'm glad to be here with you. Well, thank you for spending some time with me. Very excited about talking about uh, Noah and the flood and the ark. I, as a child, you know, in Sunday school, that was one of the, the great stories, of course, of the Bible. Yes. Uh, and then I remember a, a few years later hearing Bill Cosby. Do you remember Bill Cosby's comedy routine about Noah and the flood and how Noah was ridiculed by his neighbors and so forth? Absolutely. It's a wonderful routine. It is, and it was sort of my introduction. But as I got older, of course, people started to, you know, uh, debate whether that was even feasible. And I want to get into that a little bit later because I've, I've actually looked at some feasibility studies of, of the Ark. And right. when you do that, it actually makes sense. But, you know, people sometimes look at you like you have two heads when you say that. <laughs> First of all, I've got to get your take, Larry, on, on the movie, okay. uh, the Russell Crowe uh, movie and the Aronofsky uh, film. What, are, what is your take on that? Well, Paramount says it's a movie inspired by the biblical story, and that's probably a pretty accurate thing, because there's enough difference in the movie that if you're going to expecting something to follow along the the biblical story, you'll be disappointed or you'll be upset. Um, When I saw it once, one of the times when I saw it, the previews were for a Batman movie and for a Transformer movie. And if you like those, you'll probably like a lot of the scenes in the Noah movie because it gets pretty there's, – there's battles, there's all kinds of exciting things going on. But there's enough difference in the movie from the Bible story to cause real concern. Now, there's some things they get right, too, and so we want to celebrate that. What, what is it that you found a little disappointing then in terms of the narrative? Well, the two of the biggest things that I found most disappointing is, number one, the reason for the flood. In the Bible, it says that God saw the wickedness or the evilness of mankind, and he was grieved and made a decision to destroy the earth with a flood. And the Bible says that that was a moral, personal evil. He says there was uh, violence, there was sexual immorality, there was corruption, there was widespread lawlessness. And it says that people just thought about evil, evil, evil from morning, noon to night. In the movie, however, the evil is described as a disrespect for the environment. And the movie is very much of an environmental film. And in saying that, I don't say that we shouldn't respect the environment and we shouldn't help protect it. 
but the evilness in the movie was people eating animals and destroying the environment. And that's just a totally different thing than what the Bible pictures. Right. That's almost become the new religion, which is, uh, which is to worship the creation and not the creator. I, I think they call it Gaia, right? They, this uh, worshiping yes. the planet Earth. Yes. In fact, in, in the book of Romans in the New Testament, it talks about people that worship the crea- creation rather than the creator. So you're absolutely right. And the second thing is that Noah, in the movie, uh, sees the people that aren't on the ark as being evil and wicked, however he might want to describe that. But then he becomes extremely upset with his son, and I think it's in the, uh, an early draft of the movie, he actually hits him. And he's just devastated and realizes, and he says this, he says, the, the wickedness is in us as well as out there. Now, that is very biblical, but then he spirals down into almost a psychotic depression. And that gets into some very strange stuff in the movie, because Noah decides that God's purpose for the ark is to save the animals who are described as being innocent. But then when the flood is over, all the people, that is Noah and his family, are to die off and leave a perfect world with animals but no people. And that is just contradictory to what the Bible says. Because, because in the Bible, the ark is a, is a picture of salvation, is a way of restoring the, the human race onto the earth. Right. I, yeah, there's definitely that, that sort of sinister uh, aspect of the green agenda there, no question. Um, sort of uh, human-hating, uh, animal-loving... Uh, it is quite disturbing when you sort of scratch beneath the surface of that. Larry Stone is with us, the author of Noah, The Real Story. And uh, now, let me ask you, did, was this book in the works when you got, first got wind of the, uh, the, 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 the Aronofsky film about Noah? Was this sort of your attempt to sort of counter that, or was it just coincidental? It wasn't coincidental, Richard. I, I knew about the movie about a year or a year and a half ago, and it's not so much to counter the movie, um, because I didn't know when I first heard about it what all would be in it. But rather, I, knew, I, I thought that people would be talking about Noah, and even though it's a favorite Bible story, there's so many different aspects of it, the animals, the ark, the flood, even the search for the ark on Ararat, that I thought people would be talking about it and just want to know the backstory, if you will, about the Noah story. So that's why I wrote the book. Let's talk about the flood. It, uh, supposedly, about um, 3,000 years B.C., there was this global uh, flood, not just an isolated flood, but a global flood. And what's interesting, uh, as you well know, is that when you look around at the, 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 the legends uh, around the world, there's virtually no culture, no civilization that hasn't talked about or written about or passed on via oral tradition, a story of a global flood. That's right. And it, there's more than 300 of these stories around the world, and I tell about six of them in the, in the book, in the Know the Real Story. But what's interesting is, of course, there's differences. So, for instance, in the uh, Chippewa, which is a Native American story, the uh, Noah character, if you will, is saved, and the animals are saved in a giant uh, canoe which is, of course, part of their culture. And each culture may have a little bit different aspect to it, but generally it's one family or one individual 
that's warned by God of an impending flood, and the reason for the flood is usually because of man's sinfulness, and the, the man or the family and the animals are saved. And that is pretty consistent across the board. And the other thing that's significant about that is if you've got the Chippewa in North America, uh, you've got uh, you know the, uh, Gil- the Epic of Gilgamesh, yes. uh, you know Babylon, the Hebrews. Uh, I-, I-, I don't know, you know, I'm sure whoever was inhabiting uh, Russia at the time uh, had, a, had a flood story. That tends to suggest that it wasn't isolated to the you know the area of the Black Sea. That this was in fact a global flood. Right. I mean, I tell a story from uh, North America, from uh, Asia, from Europe, from Africa, from the Middle East, and they're all over. And some people will say, well, you know, that's because floods are a universal thing that happens. They happen all over. And that's true. And some people say, well, maybe they copied one from another. But I think the real answer is that this is a universal uh, collective memory of a one world, uh, worldwide flood. In the, the 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 biblical narrative is that you know God decided to to, to uh, f- flood the earth. I uh, sometimes we say you know maybe cleanse the gene pool, <laughs> and we can touch on that later and talk about the Nephilim and so forth and what that was really about. But uh, you know the the narrative is that God decided it was going to rain for forty days and forty nights. But is there another explanation? I mean that's the narrative. I mean, but what caused the flood? Well, actually, the Bible talks about three sources of the water. The 40 days and 40 nights of rain is what we usually think of, but that's probably only a, only a minor part of it. The two other explanations, or the two other things the Bible says, is, first of all, the heavens opened. And we're not quite sure what that is, but it's more than just water from rain. And then the other thing, it talks about the um, fountains of the deep coming up. Now, I don't know if they got it right, but boy, in the movie, it looks great. There are these giant geysers that all of a sudden come all up around the, the, the ark, and it just lifts the ark up. So if you want to know what the fountains of the deep are, go see the movie, because they have a very cool picture of the fountains of the deep erupting. Now, uh, I mean, it sounds like you know, there, are, there are certain aspects of the film that you quite enjoyed. Oh, yes. Um, another one is people frequently ask, how the how did what they'll say is how did Noah get the animals to the ark? And I asked that question in the book, and is what the Bible says is Noah didn't. It says that God brought them to the ark. And in the movie, Noah's standing there in front of the ark, and all of a sudden, all these birds come. He doesn't get them; they just come. And then a little while later, he's standing in front of the ark, and all these snakes start coming. He doesn't go get them; they just come. And then finally, all the other animals come, and it's quite spectacular. And none of those animals in the movie are real. They're all digital creations. It's, ah. it's, it's amazing. Well, let's, let's talk about the gathering of the animals. Uh, I mean, and this gets us into the feasibility study here, because people would say, there's no way you could, you could get two of every you know, known species of animal on that, that ark. Uh, but that's not necessarily so. Let's break it down. How many, how many species are we talking about here? Well, there's between 3 and 30 million species. And the reason for that huge discrepancy are the, is that the people that decide those things aren't, don't always quite agree on what a species is. But 
the question is, do you need two? When the Bible says that Noah should get a male and female after their kind, does that mean uh, does he have to bring on a dog, a dachshund, and a and a schnauzer and a Airedale, or does he have to just get two animals representing the dog and wolf family? Because there's species, and then a group of species will be a genus, and a group of gene- genera is what they call it, right. will be a family. And if and generally it's thought that he only had to get two of every family. And so although it's a lot, he could get only 16, to, only had to get 16,000 animals on the boat. 16,000 times two? 16,000. Okay, so 8,000. 8,000 families. Okay, but then from that, can we take out those animals that may have been able to swim? Well, also, yes, there's certain definitions, because the Bible doesn't talk about him having to get fish on the ark. Exactly. And also, it's interesting, it mentions that when it talks about all the animals that are dying, it says every animal died on earth, that wasn't on the ark, that breathed through its nostrils. Well, insects don't breathe through their nostrils. There you go. And so maybe insects didn't have to be on the ark, but were able to live even though the flood was. Let's, uh, Larry, let me just jump in here, uh, sure. and, and we'll uh, pick this up on the other side. We'll take a time out and continue our conversation about Noah, the flood, the ark. We'll even talk about the feasibility study. The real, uh, Noah, the real story by Larry Stone, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. And we are back with Larry Stone, the author of Noah, The Real Story. And uh, we were talking about uh, the number of animals uh, that were gathered to fit on the ark. And uh, so we're looking at, essentially, 8,000 families of of animals, 16,000 individual uh, animals. And uh, we're sort of doing the math here. And uh, as you you point out, you know, we, we don't need to include the insect world because... Uh, you know, they could they could fly, or uh, uh, they they weren't needed on the ark. We don't a lot of uh, uh, fish, amphibians. Um, I'm guessing, uh, you know, things like uh, well, obviously uh, whales. We don't have to put whales. <laughs> we don't have to put uh, you know porpoises and and so forth. Uh, so, what what other types of creatures would not have been found on the on the ark? Well, I I th- I think that's probably about it. Um, you know, then there's microbes and really small creatures, right. and many of those don't have to be on the ark because many of those live in water anyway. There you go. So we're talking about sixteen thousand animals. Now the big question then is, where would they fit? You know, could they fit on the ark? Well, you've mentioned several times the feasibility study, and there's a if you there's a real interesting book called Noah's Ark: A Feasibility Study by a person named John Woodmorap. Now that's actually a um, a uh, pen name for a man who is a uh, professor in Chicago, but he goes through all the details, how many animals could fit on the ark, what kind of food might they have had, how would they store the food, how would they store the water, in more detail, I think, than most people will be interested in. So I tried to summarize a few of his high points in the book, but if you're really interested in that, I'd, I'd suggest that book because it gives immense detail. Right. He breaks it down in terms, I've, I've got it sitting on, on my shelf at home somewhere, uh, but, he, but he, he breaks it down, I believe, in terms of, uh, he sort of compares the, uh, the, the size of the ark to boxcars. Yeah. And how many, how many animals, if you think, you know, if, you, if you've seen cattle being uh, moved on boxcars or, or, or pigs or, so, or horses or so forth, you can sort of imagine uh, how many animals you can fit on a boxcar. 
and uh, which sort of leads us into a discussion about the the actual dimensions and the size of this vessel, Noah's Ark. Well, it's the biggest wooden boat that was, uh, or one of the biggest wooden boats that has ever been made. The Chinese, back about 500 years ago, made some that were bigger. And the boats that we have today that are bigger than the Ark are steel or metal. But it was 450 feet long. Actually, the Bible says 300 cubits by 50 cubits wide by 30 cubits high. And you mentioned Bill Cosby. God tells that to Noah, and Noah says, right, what's a cubit? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what's a cubit? And and the answer is generally thought that a cubit's 18 inches. It's supposed to be the distance between a man's elbow and the tip of his finger. And the most common length is 18 inches, a foot and a half. Using those measurements, the arc was one and a half times the length of a football field and half as wide. That's huge. How does that compare to the Titanic? Well, it's not as big as the Titanic. Uh, it's probably half, uh, uh, half the length or less of the Titanic, but the Titanic, again, wasn't wooden. Right, right. Yeah. And so, and interestingly, there's a man in um, Holland that about a dozen or 15 years ago decided to build a replica of the Ark. And so, like Noah, he and his sons built, a, in this case, a half-size Ark, uh, 225 feet long, and put animals on it, sort of a barnyard animals, and floated it up and down the uh, river and canals of Holland for five, six years. Then he sold it, and he has since then built a wooden, full although it's metal-reinforced, full-size, 450-foot-long replica of the Ark that floats. And it's the only one that I know of in the world. There are other replicas of the Ark, but the only one that actually floats. Now, are the details uh, of how the Ark was built and the, the, the specifications and so forth sufficient in the Bible that someone can build an exact replica? The, the answer to that is sort of yes and no. The only details given in the Bible are the size, the 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet, and the fact that it has three decks inside, and um, what the Bible says is a window. Now, for long, without going into all the details, usually it's thought of that that was a length of windows along the top under an overhanging roof. So that's all the details we have in the Ark. It says it's to be made out of gopher wood, but nobody knows what gopher wood is. And to be covered with pitch... And we're not sure what pitch is. Obviously, it would have been some sort of uh, water protectant. Right. I mean, there uh, cedars and, and uh, uh, coniferous-type trees yes. ab- would have abounded in that area, so it's possible some sort of a, a pitch from a pine tree or the, uh, the Middle Eastern equivalent, I suppose. Right. But beyond that, uh, what, we're, what we have to do is to say, okay, Noah had to design the ark himself because God didn't give him the details, how might he have built it? And so there's a lot of speculation about how he could have built it. One that I find just absolutely fascinating is a man named Tim Lovett said, if you have a long, really it's just like a great big box, 450 feet long, and it goes parallel to the waves, the waves would make it unstable if you have big waves and this just great big long box. What he posited or supposed is that it might have had a projection on the front and a stable rudder on the back 
and those two would act like a wind vane which would turn the arc so that it would go across the waves and give it more stability. Ah, ingenious. Do we, do we know that that's what Noah did? No, but it's pretty smart. He could have because he, he had the ability to build this. Larry Stone is with us, and the book is Noah, The Real Story. Now, uh, so much speculation as to where this ark uh, may have ended up. And um, one of the, the locations that uh, seems to have gained the most currency is atop of Mount Ararat in modern-day Turkey. Talk right. to me a little bit about some of the expeditions uh, that have gone in search of the, uh, the remnants of the ark. Well, there have been many, many expeditions um, throughout history, and some in the 1800s and, and even as early as the 4 and 500s. Um, in 1840, there was a giant earthquake that, uh, that opened up a gorge on Mount Ararat, and actually with that, it destroyed a monastery or a, that was built by a monk in, I think it was about 400, who had received, according to the story, a piece of the ark from an angel. Now, this monastery had been there for over a thousand years and had many of the relics and many of the writings of ancient writings about Noah's ark, but unfortunately, it was destroyed. With the opening up of that gorge, though, there has been an increased records of sightings of the ark. Uh, one of the more interesting ones is that a man named Georgi Hagopian who was an Armenian, when he was a boy, about uh, early 1900s, his father, he said, took him to see the ark. And evidently, according to Georgie, this was pretty common that the, the fathers, Armenian fathers would take their sons up to see the ark. About 10 or 15 years later, in Turkey, there, uh, there was a uh, persecution of Armenians, a terrible genocide, actually, and many emigrated to the United States. Georgie emigrated and wound up in California and didn't think anybody cared about his story until the 1970s or late 1960s when he happened to run into somebody that was fascinated with the Ark, and he told his story. He met a man named Alfred Lee who heard him out, and uh, Mr. Lee is an artist, and he painted the Ark as Georgie described it. Hmm. And Georgie was there to be able to say, yeah, that's exactly what I saw, and we have a copy of that painting in the book. Now, Georgie has since died, and all we have is his own testimony, but he was one of the ones that says he saw the ark. There's a story about this English scientist who's quoted as saying, if you breathe a word about seeing the ark, we'll kill you. Tell me about that story. Well, yes, and that's, that's another Armenian man who was, as a boy, living near the, Mount Ararat, and these three English scientists came and hired his father during a particularly warm summer to take them up Ararat because they wanted to prove, and I don't know how you prove a negative, but they wanted to say, we've been on Ararat and have not found the ark. And if this man who says that he knows where the ark is can't find it, then we can say we can't find it. Well, Georgie went, not Georgie, but the other, this man went up with his father and the three English scientists and his father showed them the ark. And they became so incensed that they say, if you tell anybody about this, we'll kill you. Now, again, since he and his father were Armenians, he emigrated to the United States. 
And in the 19, this was in the 1850s when this happened. And he immigrated to the United States and then happened to tell his story to a um, Seventh-day Adventist pastor who carefully wrote it down in a book and then moved from California to um, Massachusetts. Later on, he read in a newspaper, the pastor did, a, a scientist on his deathbed in England giving almost the same story. And so he cut out the article and pasted it in the book in which he had written this person's testimony. Unfortunately, this book was later destroyed in fire. And so this pastor sat down and recreated it all. Now, it's an interesting story, but it depends on the memory of the pastor and the memory of the Armenian boy. So, again, it's nothing that you can say, this actually happened, but it's a fascinating story. What about photographic evidence? Didn't Life magazine publish a, a supposed photo of the Ark? Yes, and I, I have it here. It's a 1960 magazine of um, Life magazine, and there, about 18 miles from this uh, summit of Mount Ararat is a formation that looks very much like a boat, and it's approximately the same size as the dimensions given in the, in the uh, Bible. And people at the time went and looked at that and said, no, there's nothing here. Life magazine went ahead and published these pictures and very cleverly said, is this the Ark on Ararat? Well, the article says, no, it's not really, but still, it's a very intriguing uh, headline. About 17 years later, though, um, a gentleman, uh, Ron Wyatt, started promoting this as the site of Noah's Ark. And so although the pictures were published in Life magazine, and not with any real claim to this being Noah's Ark, nevertheless, Ron Wyatt started promoting this, and he couldn't very successfully. Other, others he tried, like Jim Irwin, who was an astronaut who, tried, who uh, went searching for the Ark, or John Morris, who right, is now right. president of Institute for Creation Research, they went searching for the Ark. They disagreed with him, but nevertheless, he heavily promoted this site as being the site of Noah's Ark. All right, we'll take another time out, come back. My conversation with Larry Stone, author of Noah, The Real Story, when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. And we're back with Larry Stone, author of Noah, The Real Story. Getting back to uh, Mount Ararat, the um, supposed... Uh, landing place, I guess, if you will, uh, yeah. if you would, for, for Noah's Ark. Where, where do you think it is? I mean, is that the, the most likely location? There's three primary locations that people look at. Number one is called Mount Judy, which is in the extreme southern part of uh, Turkey. Another is Mount Ararat that we've been talking about. And another, a third, is in Mount Suleiman, which is in northern Iran. And this is primarily because of the testimony of a gentleman named Ed Davis. But it, most of the focus seems to be on Ararat, and if we're going to, if I had to choose, that's where I would choose it, it, that it would be. Interestingly, I learned about two days ago that this summer there's a documentary coming out on various searches for Noah's Ark. I don't know very much about it, except I just know that it's scheduled to be released. Well, uh, why is it so difficult uh, to find this ark. For example, um, you know, I know you talk about Robert Ballard who discovered the Titanic, mm -hmm. and you know that's at the bottom of a very deep section of the uh, the Atlantic Ocean, and yet we can't find Mount Ararat 
or we can't find this ark on Mount Ararat. We've got satellites up there. We've got, you know, a number of expeditions have gone up there. Why is it so hard to, to, to put this to rest? It seems that with our modern technology, we ought to be able to do more than we really do. But we're right in the middle of looking for a plane that's landed somewhere, or we think, in the Indian Ocean, a Malaysian plane. And right now they're saying it may take a month to find this, or more, or if we ever find it. And Ararat is the same thing. We, it's, it's a mountain, it's called, the Turkish name for it is Mountain of Pain. It's covered by uh, ice, in some cases 200 feet thick. It's unlike most mountains that are 17, 16,000 feet high, it doesn't have other mountains around it. There's a small Ararat, but it just rises out of the plains of eastern Turkey, and so it acts like a lightning rod, and it has lightning strikes. Uh, I mentioned John Morris. When he was up there, he said that the static electricity was amazing, and it made his hair all stand on end. There's snakes and scorpions and all kinds of things up there. So it's not quite as easy as just saying, there it is, especially if it's buried under 100 feet of ice. True. Good point. Uh, a number of supposed artifacts uh, have, have um, you know, been, been uh, displayed, and, and people claim that these are, in fact, from the Ark. Uh, do you think they have any credibility? There's no artifact that I've heard of that has universal acceptance as being, yes, that artifact is true. Um, there, there's... <laughs> There's a gentleman who later became an Englishman who later became a ambassador to the United States who went up on the on Mount Ararat and found a piece of wood that he thought might have been uh, part of the ark, but he wasn't very insistent upon it. But he said something interesting. He said, "Indeed, I have not found any author who says he himself has seen the ark, although there's plenty who, like the retailers of ghost stories, mention other people who have." And that that seems characteristic, and I'll tell you a story, another interesting story in a minute if you want me to, but it seems like there's a piece of wood, a photograph, a detailed report, an eyewitness. All of these seem to have been seen at one time by somebody or many witnesses, but for some reason can't be found now. It is elusive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's just fascinating. So wh- wh- why then do you believe, uh, uh, Larry, that, that in, why do you believe in, in, in the flood story and the ark? Well, I, I, be, I believe in the flood story and I believe in the ark. Am I going to rise or fall on whether that ark is on Ararat? No. I mean, I, I, if somebody came and said, look, we found it on Mount Suleiman, I'd say fine. It wouldn't hurt my faith at all. But I believe that what the Bible, there's a, there's a message there in the Bible, and, the, and, and in all of these stories around the world, for that matter, and that, first of all, God is really concerned about our sinfulness, and he takes it very seriously, even if we don't. And that's an important part of the Noah story. You know, we tend to sanitize it. And one of the big differences between the movie and our, our concept our, our, of the Noah story and what the movie gets right is everybody died. And when we tell, tell the Noah story to our children in Bible storybooks, we tend to overlook or pass over the horribleness of that. But in the movie, it's there. Everybody died because God said sin is a bad deal. And yet 
God is gracious and mercy, and the, he builds the ark to save the animals and the human race. And God wants to bless us. After the whole ark is over and the flood is over, Noah says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, in the movie, that's put into Noah's word, voice. <laughs> but God, that's what God tells Noah, and the animals, for that matter, too. But there's still one more part of this that's really important. Let, let, and let me, uh, let me hold on there, we'll, and okay. we'll, we'll pick up on that on the other side. And I also uh, want to delve into, time permitting, um, why God did flood the earth. I know it was about sin, but there's that little bit in Genesis about the Nephilim, and I want to get your take on that as well. Okay. La Larry Stone, the author of Noah, The Real Story, here on The Conspiracy Show. We're back with Larry Stone. The final uh, segment here as we discuss uh, Noah, the Ark, and the Flood. The book, again, is Noah, The Real Story. Uh, so uh, let's pick up on that thread that uh, we were discussing before the break. And, and, okay. and uh, the reason for the flood, of course, uh, you know, was man's sin, uh, but he saved this one family. Right. And what's interesting is that um, what the f final chapter in the book, I have Noah's uh, secret for the, uh, surviving the end of the world. And God says that I'm never going to destroy the world again by the floods, but the Bible seems to imply that the world might be destroyed by fire or something else. And so I talk about various ways the world can end. But one of the things is that Noah talked to the people around him and while he's building the ark, and nobody believed him which I'm not sure I would have. But when the flood came, anybody that was not on that ark was going to die. And interestingly, Jesus Christ makes a parallel. And he says, you know, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to return to this world. And when I do, if you don't already believe in me, it'll be too late, just like the people on the ark, or the people that were not on the ark. And so Noah's secret for surviving the end of the world is to watch and be ready for him for the flood and get on the ark or choose which side you're going to be on and that's the message for us watch be ready and jesus christ says choose which side you're going to be on whether you're for me or not let's uh, talk about the, the wickedness in the world uh, in in those days and uh, uh i think jesus did he not also say you know in the end times it, it'll be as it was in the days of noah Absolutely. So and what was going on in those days of Noah? I'm curious to know because in Genesis it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. This to me has always been fascinating. Well, yes. And there's no bi agreement among biblical scholars what all that means quite frankly. Now, we can talk about it. And I think some of where Darren Aronofsky got his information is there's a non-biblical thing, uh, writing called the Book of Enoch. Yes. And that has more details about these Nephilim. Now, the, who are the sons of God? We don't know. Who are the daughters of men? We don't know. The three most um, typical thoughts are the sons of God are fallen angels. Right. And that's what the uh, Book of Enoch seems to reinforce. And in fact, there's parts of, I think it's Peter, that seem to imply and seem to pick up on that. The Book of Enoch talks about 200 angels in heaven that saw women on earth and lusted after them and came down and had sexual intercourse with them. 
Um, now, there's other ideas of what that means. The sons of God may have been the, the godly sons of Seth, one of Canaan, um, Adam and Eve's sons, and the daughters of men were the daughters of uh, Cain, another of Adam and Eve's sons, who was the one who killed Abel and was therefore uh, considered to be evil. Um, so there's not quite any agreement, but in the movie, they do pick up on the uh, Book of Enoch and say these Nephilim were fallen angels. What happens in the movie is that when they get killed, in a flash of light, God takes them back up to heaven. But there's a whole uh, subplot there that's sort of interesting, and you can see how it, they can get that out of the Book of Enoch, but it doesn't have much re- – it always seemed very unfamiliar to people that only know the Noah story in the Bible. Right. But we, we, we know from biblical accounts that there were giants. Uh, yes. and, and, you know, Joshua uh, went into uh, Cana and, and, and came back with reports of, of giants and, and so forth. Uh, and so that has led some people to sort of connect the dots and think, okay, the, the fallen angels came down, had relations with humans, women, and produced a race of giants. And these were the, we, you know, we, 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 um, my wife is uh, Greek, Greek, so I know all about the, the Greek legends and the, the, the Greek gods of the, the Greek, uh, the pantheon, you know, Zeus mm-hmm. and so forth. And these were, right. the, these were the Nephilim, uh, supposedly. What do you think of that? That that is exactly what many people think of what the book and uh, what the uh, book of Enoch will will say. So you know, your wife didn't make that up; she got that from the book of Enoch and from other sources. So, is there not then an argument that what God was doing was, as I sort of uh, half jokingly referred to earlier, as cleaning the gene pool? That that's what God was, you know, because I've always wondered. You know, the, the, the idea of a, what seemed like a very wrathful God in the Old Testament, ordering, you know, uh, entire villages to be destroyed, every man, woman, and child. And I'm thinking, well, if, in fact, these are not humans, these are Nephilim, then you could, you could argue that these, you know, they, they should smite. They should smite the entire village. The inconsistency of what you're saying is because the giants of the uh, Canaanites would have been after Noah. And so if the flood was to clean the gene pool and get rid of the giants, uh, they would not continue on after the flood. Uh, but it says, does it not say, though, that they, there were Nephilim on the earth in those days and also afterward? As if maybe these fallen angels came back and created a new race of giants. I don't know. I'm just yeah, trying to sort of connect the dots here. Yeah, but you're, You may be right I'm not, on that one. I'm not sure. <laughs> Sorry. All right. No, it's just, it's a fascinating, I mean, I don't know for sure either. It's just a fascinating uh, sort is. of alternative take on why God, trying to wrap my head, why would God do that? Yes. And, and as we study these things, especially if we go into extra biblical and other stories, um, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to try to figure out which of these are legitimate and which aren't. Um, I, I heard an interesting story about... Uh, um, Noah's grandfather the other day, but but the Book of Enoch. There's many many stories like that that um, you know, are meant to ex- try to and try to be an explanation of what the Bible says. Let's let's get the, take some time here and, and and get some insight on who Noah was, and you know never mind the Russell Crowe portrayal. <laughs> who who was 
the Noah of the Bible? We know very little about him, except that he was the grandson of Methuselah and the son of Lamech, uh, and uh, he, he was a righteous man, that when he was 500 years old, according to the Bible, he gave birth to Ham, Sham, and Japheth um, in that area, and about a, a hundred years later, the flood came, and then that he lived for 350 years after the flood. So he was about 950 years old when he died, but that's about all that we know about him. 500 years. And then he, then he decides, when most people would think about putting their feet up, <laughs> 500 <laughs> years, he decides he has to build an, an ark. But you mentioned Methuselah, which is interesting because we're told Methuselah uh, was around not only during, I believe, um, did he not, was he not sort of a contemporary of Adam and Eve, and yet then also he was around to see his, you know, his great-great-great-great-grandchildren? He, he was a descendant of Adam and Eve. Oh, and a descendant, right. Yeah, he was a descendant of Adam and Eve. And interestingly, according to the numbers in the Bible, if you work that out, he died in the year of the flood. Now, whether he was died before the flood, whether he died in the flood, as the movie shows, we don't know. But he died in the year of the flood. So he lived to be, what, about a thousand years old? He was 900, he's the oldest person in the Bible, 969 years now, people will say, are these real numbers? And again, there's no uh, agreement on what they mean. And what I mean by that is, do they mean really, literally, 969 years? That may be. Some people say you need to divide them by 12 because they refer to months, not years. And there's some problems with that. Others say that these are just um, meant huge numbers meant to give honor to these people. But the interesting thing is there's a thing called the Sumerian King List, and this is a list of ancient Sumerian kings with the how long they reign. And these numbers are not just in the hundreds. These are in the thousands of years. Okay, again, there's some things you can do with that mathematically. There's a reason to divide each one of those by 3,600. But the Sumerian story also has a story of a great worldwide flood. And the Sumerian king list, the ages of these kings, the length of their reigns, drops off dramatically after the flood, just as in the Bible, the numbers of the ages of the people drop off dramatically after the flood. So Abraham, who came along after the flood, a couple hundred years after the flood, um, he lived only 175 years. Now, that's long to us. But when you're used to people living 900, 950 years, that's not very long. Yeah, it's interesting to know, you know, what, what changed about the planet? Uh, you know, why were people able to live for 1,900 years? I'm wondering if it had anything to do with the, the heavens opening up and that, was there, a, was there a, something surrounding the earth protecting us from the damaging rays of the sun or, I don't know, what, what do you think? Well, there is a theory, and, um, and I've heard this, although I'm not quite sure why, but people don't depend upon this quite so much now, but that there was before the flood a canopy right. over the earth, that, exactly what you're saying, that protected us from the kinds of UV rays and the kinds of other things that come from the cosmos to make us age and to make us deteriorate. And with the flood, that canopy was eliminated or washed away, and so, consequently, our ages, um, we, we can't live that long. 
Well, Larry, listen, congratulations on uh, <laughs> Noah, the real story. And uh, what's next? What's your next project? Well, I, I've, I, my next project is a book called The Story of the Bible, which actually I published once, and I'm going to republish it shortly. Uh, and that's from uh, Nelson? Yes. Your publishing company? Yeah. Yes. And that's the history of the Bible. It's, it's a fascinating thing. But uh, I'm enjoying the, sto- the talking about Noah, and I think we're going to talk more about it because uh, people are going to be talking about the Ark on Ararat this summer. And one of the things I wanted to mention is this, I have a website with the book. It's www.noahtherealstory.com. And on there is a discussion guide. So if you're going to see the movie, my recommendation is that you um, take some friends and then go out for pizza afterwards and talk about it. And there's some ideas, some uh, things on that discussion guide that will get you started. Or go see the movie and then go home, read the book, uh, and it's a nice sort of uh, comparative study. That's right. Larry, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed it tremendously, Richard. The Conspiracy Show, the website, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Well, thank you for inviting me into your home and your head. And thank you for your ears, as always. I hope wherever you are this morning, this evening, that you are safe, warm, dry, and well-fed. Let's take a look at the news. South Korean divers have now recovered dozens of bodies from the capsized and sunken ferry. And the pain and anguish of those grieving parents of the missing and dead students aboard that vessel is palpable, even from 7,000 miles away. And my heart breaks for those people. Meanwhile, the underwater drone scouring the floor of the South Indian Ocean off the coast of Australia has come up with precisely nothing. No wreckage, no luggage, no oil slicks, and now no pings. This phase of the operation alone will cost upwards of a quarter billion dollars, and it is, I believe, nothing more than a massive misdirection. The missing Boeing 777, Flight 370, is hidden from sight on the ground somewhere in Somalia or perhaps Yemen. Let us pray Daniel Kaiser, my guest a few weeks back, is wrong in his supposition that this plane was commandeered to be used as a future weapon. The situation in the eastern Ukraine remains tense. Pro-Russian dissidents in eastern Ukraine are still refusing to give up their arms or to abandon the government buildings they're occupying. They don't trust the ultra-nationalist Ukrainian government, and this situation remains very dangerous. This is not about Russia wanting to reinvent the Soviet Empire. This is about NATO wanting to place missiles in Ukraine. It's the new Cold War, another Cuban Missile Crisis, but in reverse, where this time the U.S. is provoking the Russian bear. And unfortunately, there is no Jack Kennedy in the White House to defuse this situation. I'm worried about this one. I fear it will not end well. But let's put these things aside for an hour, shall we? We've just passed through the Easter season and Passover. And I think it's proper and right to ask at this time of year about something that is central to the Christian faith, the belief that Jesus Christ, Yeshua, actually rose from the dead in the flesh was resurrected on the third day after his crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. But is it just an article of faith? Or is there actual evidence for this resurrection event? 
In his book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, Dr. Gary Habermas writes, If the bones of Jesus were found tomorrow, would you walk away from Christianity? You should. Why? Because faith in a dead Jesus is worthless. Even the Apostle Paul says so in 1 Corinthians. He writes, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Did you catch that? The bones of Jesus would make our faith useless. Come on, Paul, isn't that kind of harsh? No, and here's why. Imagine a group of people who have dedicated their lives to Peter Pan. They construct a beautiful building to gather in celebration of Pan's life. They sing songs to him and tell stories about his wonderful deeds. What would you think about such a group? What a waste of life. Peter Pan is a fairy tale. We should feel sorry for such people. Well, if Jesus did not rise bodily from the grave, then Christianity is a fairy tale, just like Peter Pan's. It's make-believe, and Christians are wasting their lives. And what should people think about us? Paul concludes that if Christ hasn't been raised, we are to be pitied more than all men. Well, we have the Gospel accounts in the New Testament, we have the prophecies in the Old Testament, but what about documentation outside the Bible? What is the evidence for the resurrection? Here to provide some of that evidence for the resurrection is Carl Gallops, a longtime senior pastor, a former law enforcement officer, a broadcaster, and the author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah and The Magic Man in the Sky. Hey, Carl, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Well, um, I want to talk about, uh, of course, here we are now, uh, Easter, and um, I want to talk about the evidence, uh, not, not the faith so much. Obviously, you know, uh, we believe that, um, you know, that Christ rose from the dead in accordance uh, with the Scripture, uh, and that's central, obviously, to the Christian, Christian faith and theology, this belief in the resurrection of Jesus, that he returned to life on the Sunday following the Friday when he was executed by crucifixion. But obviously there are many people out there who are saying, well, well, where is the evidence? Show me the evidence. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about the historical evidence, if we can call it that, both inside the Bible and outside the Bible. Let's start, let's start with the Bible. Uh, and and um, I thought Luke would be a great, a great um, gospel to talk about because Luke talks about about the the crucifixion and the uh, the um, the resurrection sort of gives us an almost an hour by hour chronological um, approach, whereas the other gospels sort of jump around a little bit, topic by topic. Can we do that? Talk about Luke. Oh yeah, we can talk about anything you want on this topic. I, I love this topic. As a matter of fact, this is a three hour show, right? <laughs> <laughs> if only. <laughs> yeah, if only. <laughs> yeah. Well. Where do you want to begin, Richard? Well, let's talk about about uh, the Gospel of Luke and okay. and um, what 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 that tells us about the, the about the resurrection. Right. Well, the Gospel of Luke, of course, is one of the four Gospels the the, the account uh, the account of the the life uh, the the ministry, the miracles, the teaching, the preaching, the crucifixion, and then ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke is is particularly interesting, as you said, because Luke was a a, a medical doctor and an historian. Uh, we know that he was a medical doctor from some writings of the Apostle Paul 
We know, of course, he was a a, uh, detailed historian because Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And and a lot of people don't know that. Most Christians know that. But a lot of folks don't know that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And really, if you look at Luke and Acts, it's one unfolding story. Um, They're they're meant to go together. And uh, Luke does include extremely intricate historical details in all of his narratives. That's why the Luke chapter 2, uh, and well, chapter 1 and chapter 2 particularly, uh, are so um, loved and beloved around Christmas time, because there's so much detail there about the birth of Christ and, 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 and how all of that happened and all of the details, uh, names of emperors and, and, and taxes and, and uh, governors and, you know, and, and, and the wise men and the shepherds and the, and the, and the announcements of the angel and Simeon in the, in the temple. And so, and so, again, by the time we get to the crucifixion and then the resurrection, a lot of details there as well. A lot of details about Passover week, upon which uh, you know uh, where, wherein Jesus was crucified. So uh, the Gospel of Luke is very, very um, uh, intricate, and is extremely important to the unfolding of the uh, of the resurrection message in particular. That's what we're talking about tonight. And 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 when you take what Luke says and all the details that he provides, and add that to uh, the other accounts, uh, some of them eyewitnesses. Matthew certainly would have been an eyewitness to all of that. Uh, uh, John would have been an eyewitness to all of that, being disciples. And then you take Luke and his historical investigation. That's how he begins Luke and Acts, by saying, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically by saying, look, I investigated this with all the information that I could get, including eyewitness accounts, and here's a detailed accounting of what took place. So Luke speaks as an authority, and uh, of course you and I are believers that the New Testament documents are are the Word of God, so we we don't have a problem with that authority, but I mean just separating Luke out, he certainly speaks as an authoritative authoritative, um, uh, uh, historical source. As you say, he was was an historian, and and people will often counter, well, you you can't go into the Bible uh, and, and look at it as history. Uh, and use that as supporting evidence. But it was written as a history, right? Yes, yes, you certainly can. I mean, you know, again, a a Christian, we look at it through the eyes of faith. We look at it through the the illumination of the Holy Spirit. But but this is the Word of God. I mean, archaeology has never disproven a single fact of the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, archaeology, archaeological discoveries over and over, uh, have proven uh, the Bible to be accurate and to be true. Um, There's not a single archaeological discovery that disproves any historical statement within the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, as I said, archaeology over the years has actually proven uh, things that people had used to discredit the Bible, and and then, lo and behold, here comes an archaeological uh, uh, dig and revelation that says, oh, well, we can't use that to discredit the Bible. So yes, certainly you can approach the Scriptures from an historical point of view. You certainly can, and, and they're very reliable. As a matter of fact, the whole science of archaeology was originally initiated for the purpose of discovering treasures, ancient treasures. And, of course, it has, you know, since uh, morphed and evolved into something much greater than that and a little more scientific. But one of the books that was used predominantly in looking for these treasures was the Bible. 
because they, you know, looked at it as a as a reliable historical source. And as the years have gone by, archaeology has proven that the Bible is extremely reliable historically. So, so yes, we can certainly look at it with historical eyes. You know, I'm a preacher of the Word, Richard. As you know, I've been a pastor for 28 years in one church and been preaching the, the gospel all over the world and in many different formats, in books and movies and videos and radio and TV. And, uh, and, and, and I never preach a message without first putting it in uh, the text that I'm using in its historical context. And I, I always deal with the history of the, of, of, of the text in which I'm uh, preaching so that people will understand the time and the place and, and the message that it had then as well as the message it has now. So, so yes, uh, the historical context is extremely important. Uh, I find uh, this was an argument I read some time ago about you know, people who say, well, it was simply a fabrication. It was a myth. They made mm. it up. But mm. if you go back to... This, this time that Luke was writing, or or uh, Jesus' contemporaries, the apostles, when they were writing, you think about how few people were illiterate, how, how how few people could read, much less write, and how expensive paper or parchment, which was leather, it was, you know, to write. There was there was an in, there was no incentive to fabricate. I mean, right. today paper is cheap. You have the National Enquirer. Yeah. Uh, you could write anything. It's so disposable. Disposable. The National Enquirer could not, not have been published at this time. There was such a, a high regard given to writing, and, and the luxury to create fiction just right. didn't exist then. Well, no, you, you have spoken very accurately, Richard, and not only that, and, and, and I was teasing you. I wish that's why we had three hours, because, oh my gosh, you, you've, you've really opened up a passion of mine. There's so much that I could say about this. Let me just kind of give a, a brief response to that uh, by saying that, well, Everything you just said, I say amen to, plus I'll add this. Look, just look at it through common, common sense and what we know from historical documents. First of all, let's just begin with the Bible. Like you said, we're going to begin with there, but let's go outside the Bible as well. But let's begin with the Bible. Twenty-seven New Testament documents. Those are the most, without a doubt, scrutinized documents in the entirety of ancient document history. Those documents have been scrutinized for 2,000 years, not only by people who uh, adore the documents, but by people who hate those documents and what they represent and the message that they bring forth. So these documents have been heavily scrutinized, the message of them, the history of them, the archaeology of them. For 2,000 years, people have been trying with all the technology and the advanced uh, uh, historical knowledge we have to disprove those documents, not only the documents, but the message of them, particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because here's why that's important, Richard. Listen, there were a lot of religious people that were crucified on crosses. There were a lot of people down through the ages that claimed to be a Messiah or a Christ. There were other people that the Jews claimed was a Christ, and the person never claimed it. And, and that's, that rep, history is replete with those facts and examples. But there was only one who came not only claimed that he was Messiah, but claimed that he and the Father were one. He claimed to be God with us, God in the flesh. Not only that, but out of dozens and dozens of Old Testament prophecies, which were written hundreds of years before he came, some of them a thousand years before he came, he fulfilled every one of them, the only single solitary soul in all of history, seven billion people alive now, billions before that. One single solitary life fulfilled prophecies that were written hundreds of years before. 
He fulfilled them in the presence of tens of thousands of witnesses at times, then kept the promise of those prophecies and of his own mouth that he would deliver himself to the cruelest form of punishment and death that man has ever devised, deliver himself to a cross, and had the audacity to promise that he would fulfill the scriptures of Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53 and and Psalm 22 and uh, Zechariah 12, uh, that he would resurrect from the dead and that he would come back to life, and not just any old day, but three days later. Carl, let me... Carl, let me uh, just jump in here. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll talk about specifically some of those uh, prophecies that he fulfilled. And uh, we'll continue to delve into uh, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Carl Gallops is the author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah and The Magic Man in the Sky, effectively defending the Christian faith. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. And we are back with Carl Gallops talking about uh, evidence uh, both inside and outside the Bible for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, let's talk specifically about some the fulfillment of some of those those prophecies. Yeah, well, as as I was saying, and you know, I was just getting wound up answering your question. I'm sorry. I told you if you, if I had three hours, I could do it justice. But uh, but but the bottom line is, yes, it's fulfilling these prophecies. And we come back and talk about these specific prophecies in just a moment. Uh, it, they're they're amazing. But but fulfilling these before the eyes of the ancient world. And then when he did come out of that grave alive, listen, listen, Richard, like you said, we've got the the, the documents of the New Testament, tens of thousands of copies written, most of them copied by hand over 2,000 years, disseminated throughout the world, scrutinized for 2,000 years. None of it, none of it has been disproven anywhere, anytime by anybody. As a matter of fact, that's why the Da Vinci Code and the tomb of Jesus being discovered and all those things came forth over the last several years. People have desperately tried to prove somehow that this thing was a hoax. But the problem is, Richard, like you said, we've got all of those New Testament documents, the most scrutinized documents in the world. We've got dozens of documents outside of the New Testament testifying of the Christ event, the historicity of the Christ event, undeniable. And then you've got the common sense thing of you got a guy who goes to a cross and claims he's going to rise from the dead. The last thing the Roman government wanted was for there to be a resurrection, so to speak, or, or a stealing of the body or a hoax. The last thing the Jewish Sanhedrin ruling council wanted was a, a, was a resurrection event or a, or a hoax or a stealing of the body. So what does history tell us that they did? They sealed the tomb and put a, Ro- a Roman cohort around it under penalty of death to guard it, and then during the early morning hours in the night, a massive earthquake hits the area, the stone is rolled back, the body is gone. And the disciples didn't steal it, because when they went to the grave to find it, they were terrified that the body was gone, thought that they would be killed by the Roman authorities, they went and hid. So, so now we have, of course, after that event, eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Some of those people went to their death testifying that they saw and experienced the resurrected Christ. They were more certain that this Jesus Christ kept his promise and rose from the dead than they were of their own life. They delivered themselves unto death, and history records that in documents outside the Bible. So, you know, you you go back to guys like C.S. Lewis, and then Josh McDowell in our day and time, these these world-renowned atheists and professors of universities that mocked Christianity, who set out 
to disprove Christianity, to set out to prove that Christianity was a hoax, and particularly the resurrection. Because, see, they know, the atheistic, unbelieving world knows, Richard, that the entirety of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ hangs on the resurrection. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain, and we have believed in, in a lie unless he has been raised. And then the next sentence he says, and Christ has been raised. But, but these atheists know this. Which So C.S. Lewis is famous because what did he do? He, being this academician, this intellectual, this historian, this researcher, this, this professor in, in England, he gathered up all the ancient documents he could find reading about this Christ event, and at the end of his investigation, he hit his knees, Richard, and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ as Lord and became one of the greatest apologists, the greatest defenders of the Christian faith that the world has ever seen. Mere Christianity. Yeah, mere Christianity. Then Josh McDowell, who's still living and, and is a friend of mine, and uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, and Josh, I guess, would be in his late 60s now, maybe even early 70s. Uh, but, but in his younger days, same thing. He was a professor, an atheist, mocked Christians, mocked Christianity, mocked the resurrection of Jesus Christ, set out to, to destroy the Christian faith, and, and set out to prove once and for all, settle it, that the whole thing was a hoax and a myth gathered up all the historical documents he could find and research and, and, and immersed himself in, in the quest to destroy Christianity. And his words were similar to C.S. Lewis's, and I'm going to paraphrase them both. Both of them said something like this, I kept walling, running up against the insurmountable wall of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you hit that wall and consider that there's only one person in all of history that history holds up, in documents inside and outside the Bible. Even people who, in the day of Christ, were anti-Christian, yet they were still writing about the historicity of the Christ event. And he said, I kept running up against this evidence, and Josh McDowell said, there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the fact that George Washington even lived. <laughs> That's true. How do you historically prove that George Washington was alive. You, yeah. I mean, how do you do that? That's it. That's that's what I'm saying. So you 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 have to you know you have to go by eyewitness accounts and by historical documents, and we have them, we have them. But there are tens of thousands of more pieces of scrutinized literature, and dozens of documents outside those 27 books that have been copied and delivered 10,000 times. Than, than there are any ten pieces of classical literature, ancient classical literature combined. And we have that evidence to examine, to scrutinize, to submit to forensics, to submit to historical forensics. And these, these people who have done it, who have done an honest, diligent search, who set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ, kept running into the unarguable fact that there was a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, who claimed to be God with us, who worked miracles in the sight of 10,000 people. In fact, his detractors who wrote about it outside of the Bible, they speak of their hatred for this man, but they also speak of his miracles and say he had to have been some kind of sorcerer or something because his miracles were like that that the world had never seen. So, I mean, everything is there. It's there. Even people that hate him 
Even people that wrote in his time and hated him still spoke of the facts that are borne out in the New Testament documents. Uh, and, the, um, the, when, when the tomb was discovered uh, to be empty, uh, and I'm, I'm not, I can't remember which gospel account this is, but they talk about it was, it was um, um, Mary, Mary Magdalene, and um, I believe was it also um, Lazarus's sister, uh, wife, Lazarus's wife or sister, uh, you tell me though. Who, who, the, the fact that the, the w- women went to yeah. the tomb, discovered it empty, went back to the apostles, yeah. and said he has risen. The fact that that is preserved in the Bible at a time when the word—let's face it—the word of a woman was didn't count for much back then. Oh, oh yeah, but, and, and here's why. Here's why. Because that's what happened, and here's why it happened. Because when his body was taken off that cross. He was not only dead, Richard, he was so dead, with a spear shoved up his side, blood and, 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 and um, uh, you know, fluid, bodily fluid pouring out, suffering, watching him die. He was so dead that when he was taken to that grave, the disciples still, they didn't get it. I mean, they didn't understand, Richard, that he was going to literally rise. I guess it was since they had never seen that, they've never heard of that, the world had never seen it. Even all those years Jesus spoke of it, they probably thought he meant figuratively speaking or spiritually speaking or, or one day in the future his body would come out of the grave or something. But, but the disciples went home and hid Why? Because they had just seen the terrible death that their teacher, their master, had suffered. They knew the Jews hated them. They knew the Romans hated them. They knew a lot of the people by now hated them because of the persecution that was being brought upon them by the Jews and the Romans. They went and hid. Now, what were those women doing at the tomb? They were doing women's work. They were going to anoint the body because when they took the body off the cross and put it in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a borrowed tomb, it was the Sabbath. It was Passover evening. They were forbidden, and the next day was a special Sabbath because it was Feast of First Fruits, or excuse me, it was unleavened bread. And then right after that would be Feast of First Fruits. So they had, and then, and then of course, there was the regular Sabbath, the Saturday that was to come. So they were forbidden from touching this dead body. They were forbidden from preserving it and putting the spices and the anointing oils on it until the first day of the week. So what did they do? They went early on the first day of the week. Why? Because they knew the body would already be very close to a state of decay. It was going on the third day. And by the way, the third day was from there on is when the body started its decay process. So they went early, early, early to the tomb to get there as early as possible. They didn't go to see a resurrected Jesus. The disciples didn't go with them. They were hiding out. They knew that the authorities were looking for them. The authorities weren't looking for the women. They were looking for the men. The women were doing the women's work of the day. They were going to clean and anoint the body. They were going to go to the tomb and beg the soldiers to please let them anoint the body. But when they got there, the stone was rolled back. The soldiers were in disarray. They, they were fearing for their own lives. An earthquake had struck. The body was not there, and nobody could have stolen it. Everybody knew that. And people were freaking out. And, of course, the Scriptures tell us that an angel of the Lord appeared to the women and said, Look, he's not here. He's risen, just like he said. And so they ran right back, told the disciples, and the Scriptures are so honest, Richard, the Scriptures say the disciples didn't believe them <laughs> you know, until Jesus himself appeared. They thought the women were out of their minds. 
And, you know, we're a little hard on the disciples at that point, but again, put yourself in that place. Yes, they had heard Jesus say he was going to do it. It's easy for us on the other side of it to say, well, why didn't they believe? But if you were in that place, Richard, if I told you that I'm going to die tomorrow, but I'll, I'll rise three days from now, and, and I did die tomorrow, you probably wouldn't go to my grave. You'd probably say, well, I don't know if Carl can pull that off. He's, he just meant spiritually speaking. Exactly, right. Yeah, right. and that's what they thought. Well, the fact so, that what's significant to me is uh, is that they, the biblical account, the gospel preserved that version. You would yeah. think if they were perpetrating a hoax and they would right. want people to be on their side and believe them, they would change the story yes. so that it was the men, the yes. male disciples who discovered the tomb empty, but they didn't. The fact that they left that account in to me, speaks volumes. Yes, yes. And the fact that they had the men hiding away in a house afraid, because that's exactly what happened. I mean, the scriptures are so honest. And, and that's why I've said, I, and, and you know, you, you so ni- brilliantly nailed it in the beginning of this, uh, this program tonight when you said, uh, you, you know, look, um, you've, you've got all of these, uh, you, you know, all of this scenario uh, laid out before us. And all of this history, if this did not happen, how in the world could it have been that nobody in the day and time in which it did happen would have written about it being a lie? I mean, why is it that nobody ever says from that day and time, you'd think there would be dozens of documents, Richard. You'd think there would be scores of documents. You'd think there'd be hundreds of documents saying, well, we know what these these Jews, these Christians, these Christ believers are saying, but it's a hoax. It's a lie. We were there. Uh, the, the body w- wasn't gone. It was there. You, you know, but there are none. There are none. Right. Instead, we have the 27 documents of the New Testament and dozens of documents outside of the Bible attesting to the historicity of this whole event. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. When we come back, we'll uh, discuss further evidence for the resurrection. We'll take a look at uh, uh, evidence outside the Bible, Josephus and uh, Tacitus and others. Carl Gallops, the uh, author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah and The Magic Man in the Sky, effectively defending the Christian faith. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We're back with Carl Gallops discussing evidence for uh, the resurrection uh, here on our Easter special. The other thing, it's kind of an interesting um, idea, you know, maybe an experiment someone could try. Try starting a rumor or floating a, a legend, creating your own legend, and see how long it lasts. Just make something up, anything. And see, you know, put it out there. See how far it goes. Even put it online. You'll reach, you know, millions of people instantaneously. How long will that lie, that legend, that myth actually survive? And yet we have this. No, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. I thought you were finished. Go ahead. Yet you have this. Well, uh, the the point is it's very difficult to sustain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, again, brilliantly stated. And let me take it one step further. So let me take your uh, proposition. And let, let me just turn it into a quick little story and take it a step further. So let's say that you and I, of course, we are good friends, so we don't have to make believe that, but let's say that we're going to secretly uh, start a religion uh, in, in, which, um, you know, in which I would be exalted as some kind of messiah. You would be my right-hand man. 
So what we do is we plan this whole elaborate hoax, and it's going to involve a fake resurrection on my part. And we get other, you know, a handful of other people involved, and we convince them all they're going to be wealthy and rich and famous, and, and you know, we're going to rule the world and if they'll just keep their mouths shut and make this happen. So let's say we go through a process and we figure out all kinds of ways to, to, to pull off a fake resurrection, and, and, and you know, and it takes a lot of luck uh, as well as a lot of skill, but... Uh, all of the skill is put into place, and, and luckily, coincidentally, uh, the circumstances just happen to fall in place, and people are where they're supposed to be, and people that don't need to be seeing are not there, et cetera, et cetera, and we pull it off. And the next thing you know, I've presented myself alive, and you're right there. You're the Peter of the group saying, yep, I was there. I saw it. This is him. And now, you know, Carl is the new Messiah, and, and, and the double handful of people we brought in on the scam, they're with us. Okay, everything's rocking along just fine until one night, Richard, you're on your way home. You're with your wife and your precious children, and you're in your car, and three big old cars run you off the side of the road, and people pile out with shotguns, and they stick it to the heads of your children and your wife. And they say, now, you tell us right now, is this a hoax or not? If you don't tell us, we're fixing to kill your, your, your family right in front of your face. Well, you know what you're going to do? You're going to say, it's a lie. Carl's a liar. It's a scam. Please let my family live. Right? Sure, absolutely. Sure. You would not die for a scam without hesitation without i don't care how much you like me i don't care how rich and famous we were you would not let your family die for a scam not in well well now why did i tell that story well you know why richard because every one of the disciples were faced with similar situations every one of them and history bears out over time many hundreds and many thousands more went to their deaths and their families and their children went to their deaths under christian persecution proclaiming Jesus was resurrected from the grave. We saw the resurrected Savior. And those that didn't, the generation after said, my mom and daddy saw the resurrected Savior. We know that Jesus is alive. And they went to their deaths, Richard. And none of them ever became rich or famous or anything. It wasn't about that. It was about the fact that they were unbelievers themselves. The early disciples hid. The women were on their way to anoint a dead body. But once they met the resurrected Christ, they then understood what he had come to do. They knew he was the Lord. They knew he was God with us. They knew the resurrection was the truth, and they gave their lives for it, Richard. And there's a huge piece of the evidence, the historical evidence of the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not all that we have, but it's a huge piece. Well, let's talk about the... let's talk about historical evidence outside the Bible, and and let's talk about Josephus, the Jewish historian who, who was yeah. writing for the Roman government in in well, I guess it was about a generation after Christ's death, right around seventy A.D. Yeah, no, no, that's right. No, he, uh, yeah, I think he wrote in the early 100s, I think. But yes, uh, it was after, uh, about a generation after, correct. And and what did he write about, uh, about uh, Christ and the Church? Well, you know, he didn't fill up volumes about Christ and the Church, but he did mention Jesus Christ, and mentioned his uh, the reports of his crucifixion, mentioned the reports, I believe, I mean, there's dozens of documents, I believe he mentioned the reports of his uh, resurrection. Uh, but, but basically, the thing that's so good about Josephus is that he was a Jew, he was not a Christian, uh, he was a historian, 
In fact, he was a Pharisee at the age of, as a teenager, at the age of 19, he was a Pharisee. And then in, in, by 66 AD, he was a, a commander of the Jewish forces in Galilee. Uh, so, so he was a Pharisee. Uh, part of that group that would have hated this this Christ man, this Jesus, but yet when he wrote his history, when he wrote his history of the Jews, um, he included uh, accounts of this Jesus called the Christ and his miracles and what the people did and what they said and and that Pilate condemned him to be crucified and and that uh, his disciples uh, reported that he had risen from the dead. And uh, three days later, I mean, all of this is, re- is recorded in Josephus' uh, historical account. Okay, I've got to and, take another time out when we come back. There are those, of course, who, who say that those references to Christ have, were, were, were added in later. Um, we can maybe discuss that, and we can also discuss some other um, uh, pieces of evidence that exist outside the Bible. Uh, for the resurrection. Back with more of my conversation with Pastor Carl Gallops, the author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah and the Magic Man in the Sky, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We are talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, historical evidence uh, for that event with Carl Gallops. Now, uh, the references to Josephus, it has been uh, said that uh, those those references to Christ were added in later by Christian apologists. Um, what, 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 what do you? How do you respond to that? Yeah. Well, I don't really. I, I, I don't really know a lot about that, Richard. Um, and, and it wouldn't surprise me that those kinds of claims are made. I don't know how one would go about uh, proving that. Um, but the fact is, the evidence uh, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Josephus is just one. Uh, of, of many pieces of that evidence, so so our uh, you know the entirety of our faith does not rely upon what Josephus might have said or didn't say. But you and I were just talking about him as being one right. source uh, because he did write. Uh, I mean, it is in his writings about the Christ. But but it, but again, so so it is in the writings of Tacitus and uh, uh, Lucian of, uh, of Samoseta. Um, uh, let me see Josephus. Let me see if I can remember from seminary <laughs> in all my studies. Uh, Suetonius. And Tertullian, uh, good gracious, uh, there's, there's several dozen. And not, not only that, but some of the writings of uh, what we would now call the early church fathers, but you've got to remember, these guys didn't know they were church fathers any more than George Washington knew that he was the father of our nation. He, he, was, just, he was just fighting for freedom and independence. But, but, but these guys, Polycarp and uh, uh, Eusebius and uh, uh, Irenaeus and Ignatius and Justin and Origen and all of these guys, what did they do? They spent their lives researching and going through the historical documents of their day that were so close to the original times of, of, of those lives, even, even just a, maybe a century or two after, but considering we're 2,000 years the other side, I mean, these guys were so close to the actual event, and they wrote volumes, voluminous material upon the life and the history and the evidence, and they, they footnoted and, and referenced and resor- their resources, and so we've got all of that as well. So we've got these you know, 27 books that have been copied and recopied by hand, but 10,000 or more, 20,000, I think, pieces of documents we have or whole documents that have been scrutinized and all of the voluminous writing of these early church historians that wanted to make sure that what they were teaching and preaching was historically verifiable, and then these historians that we just named, Tacitus and Josephus and others, um, uh, that, that wrote about 
things going on in that period of time, and, and then would mention, you know, Pontius Pilate and Jesus and a crucifixion and the Jews that were following him and a resurrection account. And again, it's these kinds of documents, these kinds of historical uh, uh, verification that caused these great atheists, C.S. <laughs> Lewis and Josh McDowell and a bevy of others, to fall on their knees after running slap into this wall of evidence and say, you know what, there was a man who rose from the dead, who claimed to be God, who went to a cross, claimed to be going for our sins, and then we look at the Old Testament prophecies, and boom, 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 he fulfilled them, only one person. And they said, this has got to be the Messiah. This uh, has got to be him. Let's circle back and discuss some of the prophecies, because I, I, uh, I failed to do that earlier. And that is, uh, again, here's the, the claim by the, uh, the, the debunkers, that uh, Jesus would have had access to some of these the scrolls from what later <laughs> became the Old Testament, and he could have set out to decide to fulfill those prophecies. Yeah, yeah. How do yeah. you how do you uh, respond to that? Yeah, well, well, absolutely. Let me be as honest as I can. Uh, self-fulfilling prophecies on some of them? Absolutely. Yeah, self-fulfilling. Could he have started his ministry in Galilee as Isaiah said? Absolutely. Could he have come bringing a message of peace and 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 love of God uh, as Isaiah said and and some of the other prophets? Absolutely. I mean, you can go through some of the self-fulfilling prophecies. Um but but there were also prophecies that said that he would be born in Bethlehem, but yet he would come out of Egypt, yet he would come out of Nazareth. Well, I don't know, and yet he would begin his ministry in Galilee. Don't know how you would self-fulfill exactly where you were born, and that your daddy did take you to Egypt, and you did come out of Egypt, and you did, you were raised in Nazareth, and you did begin your ministry out of Galilee. That would be hard to self-fulfill, but even if you could pull that off, even if those coincidences just lined up in your life and you saw them in the Scripture and said, hey, I'm going to claim I'm this dude, then you've got the prophecies of that he would open the eyes of the blind, he would cause the deaf to hear, he would uh, raise the dead, he would heal the sick. Well, not only did he do that, but he did it in the presence of so many witnesses that it was irrefutable that he did those things. So the people who wrote about it in his day, who despised him and that movement, claimed that he was some kind of sorcerer. As a matter of fact, when you go internal the New Testament documents, you run into the same claims from the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who said, he's got a demon in him. He's a witch. He's a sorcerer. So they never disputed that he did these things. They just couldn't figure out how, because nobody had ever done them yet. The prophecy said that the Christ would do that. Then, self-fulfill a crucifixion? You know, brother, you, you'd have to be out of your ever-loving mind to say, I so want to be recognized as the Messiah, I will give myself to a Roman crucifixion. Yet, in Psalm 22, David, who wrote it, looked down 1,000 years into the future under the spirit of prophecy. And you know what he says in Psalm 22? He speaks of the Christ, and he says, They have pierced my hands and my feet. They circle around me, and they say, Let him deliver himself. He saved others. Let him save himself. They gamble for my clothing under my feet. My bones are out of joint. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I mean, how do you self-fulfill that? And why would you self-fulfill? Who in the world would submit themselves to a Roman crucifixion for five minutes of fame. Who would do that? And, and then you've got the prophecies of the resurrection. 
and then, of course, everything we've been talking about. How do you pull that off? How do you self-fulfill that? So, so the argument of self-fulfilled prophecy only holds up for just a handful of things, but you've got to deal with a dozen supernatural events that were prophesied that were pulled off in the singular person of Jesus Christ. Uh, you and I have never talked about the Shroud of Turin. I, I, I've done many shows. I, I think it's one of the most fascinating relics um, the world has ever known, but I, I've never talked to you about it. What's your take on the Shroud of Turin? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, I, I try to be as honest as I can. For many years, I didn't give it much credence, but, and, and because I just hadn't done a whole lot of in-depth study on it. It really wasn't on my radar screen. It was interesting. I would see a few shows on TV about it or read some articles. But here, a couple of years ago, I really immersed myself into some studies and some scientific analysis and scientific studies and uh, I, I'm going to tell you, um, I'm convinced there may be a little something to it, Richard. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's, it's, it's really fascinating, and, and I'm not an expert. I'm sure you know much more about it than I do, but you asked for my opinion, and, and I'm just saying that it's, it's, it's appearing that there, uh, there, there's something, either something extremely supernatural about that, or there was an advanced science that we know nothing about that enabled them to duplicate uh, all that's within that shroud. Right, and for those listening that may be not familiar with the Shroud of Turin, this is purported to be the burial cloth, uh, the the, the shroud that that was wrapped around Jesus at the time of his death, and the image on the shroud, which is interesting because uh, it was photographed in the late 19th century by a photographer by the name of Pia Seconda. When he took a photograph of it, his his it was a a positive image on yeah. his film, which means that the image on the shroud is a negative image. Right. That's that contains three dimensional information. It's a three D negative. I mean, how they would have been able to 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 uh, to, to to pull off that hoax in the middle Middle Ages yeah. uh, is beyond me. But here's another interesting thing about the shroud. Thing about the. The, the prophecies being fulfilled after death. Is there not something in Psalms also about that during the crucifixion his legs would not be broken, which was the, which was the way that the Roman soldiers would quickly dispatch a, a, crucif- a crucifixion victim? Yes, and I do not remember the exact reference, but there is an Old Testament reference to the fact that not a single bone would be broken. Absolutely, there is. In fact, I was reading it just the other day, and I cannot remember where it is right now. And I'm I'm not sitting in front of a computer or my Bible to to or a concordance to research it. But you are correct. There is an Old Testament reference to that. I mean, this is what I'm saying. There are dozens of prophecies like that. How could he self fulfill that? For example. And uh, what's interesting, and the reason the soldiers would would the Roman centurions would break the legs of a, a crucified victim is to hasten yeah. their death because they couldn't yeah. hold themselves up but with their legs anymore, so they would essentially sort of suffocate. That's exactly right, and and since it was the night of the Passover, the Romans, trying to keep peace among the Jews, were not going to have a bunch of dead bodies hanging up on the highest, or one of the highest holy Sabbaths of, uh, of the Jews, so they had to get them down. And so the two thieves apparently were still alive, as many victims would be, because they that was such an agonizing, slow, sometimes, you know, days people would just linger upon the crosses in, in agony. Uh, and so they would, uh, they would break the legs with a mallet, and then that, that uh, in, uh, kept them from being able to push up on that, 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 those spikes in the feet uh, to get a breath of air, because... 
you know, the body would give out. They would hang from their arms, and their lungs would collapse. They couldn't breathe, so they would push up and get a breath of air and then go back down. They would do that for hours, trying to stay alive, trying to cling to life to keep from suffocating in their own, you know, bodily fluids. What a miserable way to die. Yes. And so, and so because, because they lingered, then what they would do is they would break their legs with a mallet, and they would literally drown in their own body fluids. And, but they didn't have to do that with, with Jesus because he was already gone, and they stuck a spear in his side just to make sure. Right, and the and the the blood, and it is blood. They know it's blood on the shroud. That that uh, injury and the blood that came forth was a combination of serum, yes, and or water and red blood uh, cells, meaning it was post mortem bleeding. Right, and again, the legs were not broken. The image on the yes. shroud, the legs are intact, which supports the biblical uh, narrative. Yes, uh, and the prophecy fulfills yes. the prophecy. And, and as a matter of fact, Richard, let let, let me share one other piece of information that's that's uh, hugely important. I, I've uh, said it several times tonight that the, the Bible mentions that after three days he would rise from the grave. And, and people say, well, now where does it say that in the Old Testament? Of course, Jesus said in the New Testament that that's what he would do. In fact, he used the, 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 the example of, of Jonah. He said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And, but then would you know, be resurrected, and that would be a sign to the Jews that he was the Christ. But people say, well, you know, Carl, you, you said that the Old Testament talks about him rising after three days. I, I can't find that anywhere. Well, if you know what you're looking for, you can find it, and it's as plain as the nose on your face. And it's in Psalm 16, where the psalmist David says he's, he's rejoicing that God is his Savior, and he says, and you will not allow me to rem- and I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm going to get to. I'm going to give a specific quote in a minute. He says, "And you will not abandon me to the grave." In other words, death is not the final answer because I belong to you. you. He was David was convinced that God was going to give him eternal life. He says, "You will not abandon me to the grave." Watch this. The next verse says, "Nor will you let your and and it depends on which translation uh, your holy one or your anointed one." see decay. Now that's interesting, because if you were to write that in in Greek, the word anointed in Greek is Christo. So it would literally read, nor will you let your Christ see decay. Amazing. Carl, i got to leave it there. We are out of time. But uh, I want to thank you for your time. And uh, again, remind listeners, the rabbi who found Messiah, the story of Yitzhak Kaduri, and of course, the magic man in the sky, effectively defending the Christian faith. Always a pleasure, Carl. It's my honor, Richard. Thank you for having me. All right. Happy Easter. Thanks, Tim Spreen, for production. Back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be with us. Bye for now. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.